Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey friends, welcome to another edition of the Tennis and Bagels podcast. Uh, big week, this one. Uh, we had Dubai, a couple of 500 events. Dubai, obviously, one of the most packed uh, 500, if not the most, of the entire season. Um, we had the obvious champion, Medvedev. We had Djokovic, Rublev, a lot of great players playing. Acapulco was a little bit um, less uh, packed this week, obviously. Nadal choosing to re- to withdraw because of uh, ongoing injury and uh, also Tsitsipas from what I've just heard from Bunch, uh, which is kind of bad. It feels like I don't really follow tennis, but I do. It's just sometimes we miss some news here and there because we have lives. Unfortunately, we cannot live off of the podcast right now, but uh, um, we'll see. Things are going well on our side. Uh, Bunch, we're here and we're going to be talking tennis again. Um, how are you doing, man? Yeah, doing good. I mean, this is another jam-packed week. We got five events, but mostly um, Dubai and Acapulco where we had some pretty exciting storylines there. Um, obviously, the re-emergence of Medvedev in such great form as he has been, I think, now in a 14-match win streak. That's three straight tournaments in a row. He's only the fourth player in the last 10 years. Since 2011, to really do that, it was him and Andy Murray and Casper Ruud and Felix last year. And to win three titles in back-to-back weeks, different hardcore conditions in all three, and 4-0 versus top 10 players. And obviously he beat Djokovic in the semifinals. We'll get on to that as well. But just, yeah, an overall pretty exciting week, uh, shaping up really nicely for the Sunshine Double. So I'm excited to get into all of it. Yeah. Um, so let's start with the obvious, Medvedev. Apparently a completely different player now than what he was um, for a lot of 2022. Um, yeah. Actually, let's uh, talk about that because um, he... Obviously, we know what happened. He didn't have a great end to 2022. He lost all his matches at the ATP Finals. He won a couple of titles, but didn't really perform very well at the big events after the Australian Open. And, you know, we can say there's a lot of factors there. Maybe the hernia operation that he had uh, after Miami, where he had to skip pretty much most of the clay season, wasn't allowed to play Wimbledon because of the Russian ban. And then, of course, the just the, you know, memory, just losing that painful, heartbreaking final to Nadal. I mean, that can just set, that's the type of loss that can really set your career back in many ways, for several months. like, And I think that's what actually happened. And I kept thinking, okay, he's going to come back. He's going to win. When he won Los Cabos, I was like, okay, now he's going to do his thing. He's going to you know, be in the top two or three again. He's going to start winning on hard courts. Didn't really happen. He won Vienna. I thought that was a springboard. Didn't happen. He lost in his next four matches. And then he lost to Djokovic in Adelaide. And I, Okay, that's not a bad loss. But, you know, maybe you would have expected him to be a little more competitive since Djokovic was suffering from a hamstring injury. But that's all right, we move on. And then he loses to Korda in the third round of the Australian Open. And we didn't know this then, but we know this more now. I mean, we kind of thought it was maybe a factor then with the wrist. Um, his, you know, he took he did take a timeout in that match, I think in the third set at some point. But he didn't really talk much about it afterwards. He was just praising Korda and, you know, talked about, you know, his, uh, it was a close one. And at first, uh, and I think we were more worried than he was. 
honestly, after that loss. And then after that, he just looked like he had a total reset. And now he's uh, he's just he's just on an absolute roll. The things that stand out to me, I think, uh, I'll, I'll ask you in a second. But for me, it's the it's the forehand. Mm-hmm. He's really hitting that with a lot a lot more depth. He's really using it as an offensive weapon, and he's getting it through these courts, especially in Dubai, which played pretty quickly. But he is, I mean, he is just absolutely firing on that wing. As he's running around his backhand and hitting his brutal inside out forehands and just attacking from the ad court, almost like Andre Rublev style, but just. You know, he has the outrageous defense to go along with it. He's serving unbelievably well. I mean, the greatest returner of the game only broke him once. And that was the only break point that he faced the whole match in that 6-4, 6-4 win. And, you know, he just cruised through his opposition. At one point this this tournament, he won 20 straight points, 21 straight points against Borna Choric in the quarterfinals it was. And then he just routined his countryman Rublev in the final, who had a pretty good week himself. But, and I think, yeah, Rublev was a defending champion, of course. But um, now you just look at him and you're just like, you know, he's now like three in the race. He's got all these, he's got all this momentum, but we wonder if it'll actually carry over to the Sunshine Double and and the clay season. I think that's the next thing is, you know, does yeah. this does this really carry over? Or are we, you know, are we kind of going to see the upward and downward thing that we've seen with, with yeah. Medvedev sort of? I mean, it, it's... He hasn't had like his most like convincing results in the Sunshine Double, and he obviously isn't the greatest clay court player. Um, you some would say he probably doesn't isn't even like a top twenty uh, clay court player. Uh, he's been good results here and there before, but like for some reason he just doesn't really like the surface. I think it's more mental than actual game style. Uh, so we can't really say that we expect much from Medvedev. I don't think we should just like write him off like during the clay season. But I think we should shouldn't keep our expectations too high, especially because obviously he just won three hardcore tournaments. Um, but I, I do agree. Like obviously, like I think his he is hitting very well. Like he's being very aggressive. He's also being very patient. He's like just the classic Medvedev that doesn't look like he's like struggling mentally, like in with doubt. He doesn't. He, he's not really doubting himself. I think I see he a lot of that in the, yeah, exactly. And, more confident, assertive, yeah. rallies. Yeah, and I, I see a lot of that in his return as well. Because like his his return, like for a lot of last year, I was thinking like maybe he just, just needs to make some adjustments because he's still like pretty far back. A lot of people are just yeah. taking a lot of advantage of his like coming up to the net, which Djokovic did and uh, Rublev tried to do. Felix also tried to do this past couple of weeks, uh, and it it didn't really work a lot of the times. Mostly because uh, the players themselves just didn't necessarily have the same level of confidence that Evadev is riding on. Um, but also because Medvedev has just been returning ridiculously well, uh, it, it's just it's just great to see him like from that far back, just making those returns looking um so offensive and so yeah. um it's it's just the classic uh wall um mode that he goes on and then he goes on to like sometimes find as you said like a forehand like an attacking forehand um. Not out of nowhere, but like a very uh, calculated um, match play that he's doing. So that's it's really good to see. I think it's we can be confidently saying that Medvedev is at his best, not necessarily like game wise, but well, game wise of course, but not only game wise, but also um, I think mentally as well. I think Medvedev is is pretty much back to his old belief that he belongs, and he said it during one of his interviews, or I think that he was really disappointed with himself that he dropped out of the top ten. Uh, so that was his goal, and it didn't last like two weeks outside of it. So um, that's pretty good, and I think he's gonna be chasing the top three now. Obviously, he's he's 
yeah. chasing the top five first, but I think he has no doubt in his mind that he belongs at least in the top five. So he he won't be chasing just the top five. He'll be chasing definitely top three at this point. Yeah. No, I feel like that's where he belongs, especially on a hard court. We've seen now like how many titles he's won. I mean, he's won 18 titles. 17 of them have been on hard courts. And he's won pretty much every big title over a 500. He's won 10 of them now. And there's only mm -hmm. 18 total. And I have to wonder at some point, is he just going to start winning every single title above 500, 500 or above? And then just, you know, before he retires, that'd be honestly the most iconic thing, like just winning every single big title or 500 title on a hard court. And then just, you know, sitting back and saying, you know, I've done it. I've done it once. Because the reason I make that joke is he's won 18 different titles in 18 different cities. And yeah. he's never won a title more than once. No, his, like he's come close to defending in the past. Like obviously, you know, ATP finals, he then made the final the next year. Or like Paris Bercy, he made the final the next year, didn't like win it. And then he's made two Australian Open finals back to back. So he has had like repeat success in some places, but you know, it's just uh, it's one of the coolest stats, I think, in tennis. Is there anybody oh. has come close to winning as many titles, like all in different places? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean obviously the big apart from the big four, I mean his is really what's what stands out. I mean, Djokovic doesn't like enter in all of these 500s most of the time, yeah. but like, I think in terms of, in terms of 1000s, I mean, he just has Indian Wells in Miami on a hard court that he hasn't won yet. And Australian true. Open where he was just a few points away. Mm -hmm. And then just four or five other 500s and some, I think two of which he hasn't even played like Beijing. And, you know, I think like, like Basel is the same week as another 500 during the fall. So it's like, you kind of have to pick one. Yeah. But I like how he, when he's asked about it, he's like, you know, like if you're going to be back next year, he said that after Doha, he's like, you know, I like to go in different places and cities and experience the vibe and then see and win in a different place. And that's why, like, that's why he, he chose to play in Los Cabos after Wimbledon when I, I thought he would go to Washington because it made, it made more sense. You know, he was a top player and 500 and instead he just went and he won Los Cabos and it's like, oh, cool, I won here now. So it's just... It's it's yeah. kind of cool, and he's back to his trolling best. Obviously, you know, you saw in the trophy ceremony, he threw a little bit of shade at Stefano Tsitsipas yeah. <laughs> after winning, and which honestly, you know, these kind of things like they're it's like kind of petty and harmless, like type, like trolling, like in the moment. Yeah, I think it's like, like a lot of uh, if tennis has a level of trash talk, I think that's it, and I, I, I think if it goes like too yeah. way too deeper than that, but like I like how it's like the. Um, like the backhanded, like not a backhanded compliment, but like in a sense, it's um, they're just indirectly speaking. He didn't name Tsitsipas. He said like someone said this. You have to have like, understood the reference. To, it's like to it's it, it's like as if nobody understood that you're talking about Tsitsipas. So yeah, but I think it's, it's I think it's funny. It does create some like level of like rivalry. Like when the, when are they gonna face each other again? Like I think it's gonna be a bit more sparkles in a match. What, what, what I like about these two is like they really lean into it. They really lean into. Being yeah. the being the villain in this kind of role, like they, they obviously don't like each other. And some of their matches recently, like they've been sort of like they've not had much drama, you know. Mm -hmm. Like the handshake has been kind of normal, and they've just but like they don't like each other. Like that much is yeah. very obvious. Yeah. And they just it, it's you know, and they don't have to. Like they're so different. They're just so different as characters and appealing yeah. in their own ways. And just you know, their fan bases couldn't be any more different. Like they're just everything about them is totally different. The only thing in common is that Sitsipas is half Russian. <laughs> I met with them as like full Russian. That's like the only thing. And yeah. like they're playing at the same time and pretty much, but it's just, I, I, I don't know. Like personally, like I, I think we should have more of that sometimes, sometimes in tennis, like it doesn't really cross the line or anything like that. It's just, you know, friendly little like rivalry. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it's, uh, it, it can 
bring more fans into the yeah. game without being like yeah. too disrespectful. I think. Yeah. And and I think that um well I think that not being too disrespectful is key here. But like I feel like we always like the on court rivalries and whatnot, but like yeah. I think it's always cool like when their rivalry kind of extends a bit a bit after. Like when they're like on the in the press conference room, they're just kind of like trading um indirect blows at one at each other. I think it's I think it can add to like spicing up like some of the narratives yeah. that we can like, can do like in the sport. And if they're not being disrespectful, they're just I mean they're 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 human beings. They're allowed to not I like think, each other. I think the best part is that that we know about Rublev's character as well. I mean Rublev just took this like you know he didn't take it personally when Sitsipas made that comment. And Sitsipas to to his credit actually apologized after he mm-hmm. he said that. And, you know at, at the time I was like oh this is like you know just petty and stuff. But even that was. <laughs> You know, it's kind of harmless. He was basically just saying Rublev's a little bit one-dimensional. You know, I should have won with the... I have more tools than he has and at my disposal. And, yeah. you know, he he won and he was a better player. But he just said he won with the few tools that he had. Yeah. And at that point, it seemed like, oh, you know, that's... You know, you just lost a match, you know, 6-3, 6-2 in the last two sets. And so what does it say about you that you lost him? But but I don't, you know, I, I personally, I don't, I don't really see it. Like, you know, even Rublev said that you know, he didn't take it personal at the time because he knows that he's super emotional and he does things at the moment, you know, yeah. on the spur. Like, you know, you, you get, you've seen his behavior on the court yeah. and he used that as an example. He's very self-aware of that. And and so he didn't take it personal. And then he also said that Tsitsipas came up to him directly and apologized mm. as well. So, and at the same time, you know, he, he didn't understand in the beginning what Medvedev was, that Medvedev was referring yeah. to Tsitsipas, but then he sort of got it later, you could tell. Yeah, yeah. And that was, that was kind of funny, but it's yeah. just... yeah. But yeah, I, and I mean, if you want to talk about Rublev a little bit, just like in terms of game yeah. style, like um, he's not having like the greatest um, starts of the season, like that he possibly could have. Like he started better before. Yeah, a few um, more losses early in tournaments, like yeah. um, lost it, early yeah. to Kokonakis and RBA, and yeah. But he has shown some good clutchness. I like his. I yeah. like that he's um, moving on from some of his disappointments a bit better. Yeah, there's three <laughs> matches he's won this year now, having saved match points. Him and yeah. Andy Murray. Yeah, I do. I do like that. I do like that. One of the greatest qualities of Rublev is that he's he's always trying. Like he's he's never really like letting himself down too much. Like he's always trying to like come back and like win. Like just kind of resetting out of your match. He does have like a little problem of like getting too frustrated, or he just sometimes he can let him linger for a bit too long, and then he'll go down from for many games. But he's never really out of it because he has. You know he has weapons on from the baseline that he can hurt you with. Yeah, I think uh, especially yeah. the inside out forehand, and he, he has these set patterns that I feel like mm-hmm. like to put him away is still pretty difficult because he's so yeah. intense and he's yeah. so competitive. Yeah, I do think that sometimes he wants it so much that he can like, you know, yeah. lose a sight of like uh, being patient and being like in the moment, or he That's just lets the moment like mood swing him too much. Uh, so I feel like there's a little bit of a problem, and I like the way that he was playing against Matt, but in the beginning of the match, I feel like he. He was doing it right. He was using his forehand, like to. He was uh, even to, serving and balling a few times. And yeah. He had some good success with it, but yeah. you know, once you lose a couple of points, it's hard to sustain that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do think that one of the things that Rublev should be trying to do, and he did it, and we had some success with it, is just trying to be a little bit more brave with his shots. Like sometimes I feel like he goes for two big targets. Like try to like yeah. hit a bit closer to the line, like a uh, uh, Medvedev. Medvedev is the master. Yeah, you, you're not you're not gonna like beat Medvedev by hitting just like the same like big targets as always. Like he's yeah. he's gonna come back, and he came back, and there were plenty of like long rallies in this match, and you know who's gonna win those. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is because he's so because he uses that reliable pattern with his inside out forehand normally against most matchups. It's going to the righty backhand. It's kind of putting them 
It's kind of yeah. stripping them of power, but against Medvedev, it's like, oh, I can just absorb that. I can just redirect it. I'll yeah. hit my cross court back in deeper than yours, and I'll even, you know, inject pace in my forehand when you're least expecting it, and I'll probably serve you off the court. Yeah, and you know, Medvedev is also not a, not a guy who like takes Rublev's second serve like on the rise. Like he's happy to like kind of stay back and just absorb the pace. Yeah, but many players who usually beat Rublev, they beat him by attacking a sort of susceptible second serve, and because yeah. it's kind of short, it lands in the middle of the box and. Mm-hmm. If he doesn't hit the spot well, he's he's in trouble because now he's having to defend a, a lot before he gets back to the point. I think that one of the things that Rublev can try to like up, like um, practice and get it better, improve it, is his backhand slice. I think it's yeah. He I think he had the right idea, like trying to slice a few shots. He's trying to like change the pace a little bit. Like the Medvedev is not a big fan of ha- trying to hit good slices, um, but uh, his slices just a little too floaty like too baseless um he used to not he used to not really have that in his arsenal yeah but now he's that that's a really good tool to have especially yeah especially if you want to beat players like medvedev who's very far back and a little less uncomfortable because what the slice does is it's kind of it throws in a nice little change up and it forces medvedev to like create his own pace yeah from like really uncomfortable low position and then he can sort of have another forehand to work with yeah and just kind of uh, control. No, no, I think I think if Medvedev is playing his absolute best, I I just don't yeah. think there's any way possible for Rublev, like <laughs> at all. Like it's yeah. just it's just very unlikely. Like you, you would have to be like a a really good day on the office for Rublev to challenge Medvedev. But as but, much uh, as that, but but Rublev had a very good week because he beat. Uh, well, he got out of that match against Davidovich Fokina. He was down six one in the second set tiebreak, yeah. and he lost the first set six one. And he didn't just like you know. It's not like like Fokina made a ton of errors and he just got it. Like Rublev actually, like you know, he earned those match points saved. He mm-hmm. came up with some brave shots, came to the net and a few times yeah. as well. So he, I think, he deserves some credit for that. And he also got his first win over Zverev, who's looking much better. Like actually now, yeah, yeah, the semis and that's not been a good matchup for Rublev in the past. He was zero for five coming into that, mm-hmm. and he ended up winning winning against him in a really close second set tiebreak, and he won the first set six three yeah. as well. So. Yeah, and he uh, he did really well saving a couple set points as well, like in that second set. I think oh, yeah, like he if, did. He, if he had lost it, things could have been different. Yeah, that could have been trouble had he lose that second set. So, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I think now Medvedev is all eyes on with the sunshine double. Honestly, you know, with a yeah. decent draw, he could do better than there in the previous years. I mean, he he is a little bit similar to Andy Murray, like we were talking about last yeah. week. In the sense um, that Murray never really found those conditions suitable for his game, he did make one final, and he does tend to do well when it's windy. But with those type of gritty slow courts, uh, it's going to be a little harder for Medvedev to maybe the hardest hard court event for him to win potentially yeah. in his career. But now with Djokovic and Nadal not there, and Alcaraz a bit of a question mark. Same with you know other top players. I think, and, and because he's in such a good mojo and mode right now is like everything is just kind of coming automatic to him he yeah. doesn't really have to think much uh it's it's all just like flowing naturally mm-hmm. i think this could be the time where he definitely could win a few rounds and put himself in contention yeah. I, I like his chances probably better at miami the only thing there is that the conditions are very humid <laughs> and he's not a player who really likes humidity much but other than that as far as the he should be able to still get a pretty good purchase out of his serve and still his Ground game is going to be tough for anyone, really, if he's has the right mindset. So yeah, 
Let's see, like maybe the slow qualities of the, the court finally like awaken him, like in the sense, like I can just kind of defend and just be happy with being um, in a longer rally and just kind of like wear my opponents down. Like it's going to have to be down to I mean, like, his, his physical, his physicality is so impressive too. Yeah. Like because... for a six foot six player as well, <sighs> the movement. Yeah, and I think he made like zero unforced errors in the final off of his back end. He made, I know he made only seven unforced errors against Novak Djokovic in the semis. Yeah. And that was just ridiculous because even when you thought it could get away from him, like in the, um, in the, in the semis, actually, let's talk about the semis a little bit more because, um, obviously, you know, him and Djokovic, like Djokovic had won the last four meetings and sort of had, I don't want to say like total control over that head to head, but he'd been winning the last few encounters. Um, and you know, I think the, he won the last three or four. Yeah, he won the last four, and but one of those was like a retirement in Astana after Medvedev retired after the second set. And one of those was a dead rubber at the ATP Finals, but that was a really close match as well. And Medvedev served for it in the third set, uh, and then Djokovic ended up winning in the third set tiebreak. And then they obviously they had the one in Adelaide, and then another one in Paris after the U.S. Open in 2021, which was three sets. But basically, I mean. Still a really difficult matchup for Djokovic. I think out of all of his rivals that he has, out of all the young players, he, he treats Medvedev, you know, like he's a Murray or a Federer or an or Nadal. He really sees him as one as a big threat. Um and, and he should because, you know, there's a lot of things that, there's a lot of good qualities that he has that uh, you know, I feel like Medvedev can match him in like shot tolerance, for example, or like depth on the backhand, trading, cross court backhands, the movement. It, it feels like Djokovic has to use every ounce of his creativity. You know, you saw him go to the drop shot so many times and you saw him just try to just hit winners and go for broke on like the fourth or fifth shot in the rally. And I think some of that is that because his cardio and his fitness is not like at an optimal peak at this very moment. And I think some of that is just, you know, maybe because his opposition at the Australian Open, like it didn't really force him to get to that level. You know what I mean? Like, I think some of that is that and just maybe just hangover from like that whole experience last one year and then finally you know winning his 10th major i mean winning his australian open for the 10th time and then didn't probably just like didn't train much for yeah. several days and then just came back in dubai and he was a little rusty in his first match got through that against mahako played a great match by the way yes. and then won his next two rounds but against medvedev you have to be like willing to dig in and grind and prepare to like really suffer and i don't think Djokovic was really quite ready to do that just yet, yeah, no, because he's, I think he's just trying to sort of peak to get himself in great shape to win the French, yeah, uh, and you know, and and do that. Like I, I fully expect. I think his all these things that I'm saying, like his cardio shot tolerance and his sustainability in these wrong wrong rallies. I think by the time Rome or Madrid comes around, oh, I think he's going to be fine. Be, yeah, he's going to be totally yeah. fine. Even I wonder if he's going to play Monte Carlo. Yeah, I, I think he has in the past. He's not had great results there though since 2015. And he's yeah. sort of like lost early, like to Davidovich, Fukina, Dan Evans, players like that. But then as the clay season goes on, he just gets continually better every time. Yeah. And usually by Rome, he's either winning the title or he's losing to Rafa yeah. in the final. And same it's, with it's, the French. It's a question of like scheduling as well at that point. Because like he, the Monte Carlo is not a mandatory master. So it's like a good yeah. decision. It's like a an easy skip, if you will. Especially because you still have like two Masters 1000 coming up and a Grand Slam. So like obviously... Yeah. Uh, especially if you're Djokovic, I would say like obviously every player wants to win a Grand Slam, but if especially if you're Djokovic, um, where you know you're like one of the biggest favorites to win the tournament, probably still always second only to Nadal, and who knows how Nadal's going to be feeling this year at the French. 
Um, but you don't want to like burn out on three masters on thousands before like the most important thing comes up. Um, and for yeah. Djokovic is the record of the Grand Slams. This is definitely the thing that he's chasing the most right now. So especially after like the ridiculousness of 378 weeks is number one, which is not going to lose yeah. actually anytime soon right now. Yeah, I mean, he's going to have that record for a few more weeks at least. I mean, Alcaraz would have to do absolutely amazing the next Indian Wells in Miami, like potentially do the Suntime double day and yeah. uh, get it back. And even after that, he has so many points to defend. So, no, I think I, I think Djokovic is totally fine. Like, losing this semifinal, like, there's no concern none, like, whatsoever. Yeah, no. I, I think everyone knows that. Uh, but, but it was so important for Medvedev, like, because, you know... It, from from a Doha and Rotterdam perspective, he beat Felix twice. He beat Sinner. He beat some good players. But this is like the ultimate test. So the fact that he got a win there and then yeah. won the finals, I, I think I think for Djokovic, he Medvedev is now. I I I, I believe that Djokovic did not want to lose this match um, at all. Like I feel like Djokovic, if he could have, he would have won it. Like I feel like he tried really hard to it win was, it. It was one opening that I felt like he could have grabbed, which was the yeah. tenth game of the second set, thirty all. He goes yeah. to the backhand drop shot. He didn't follow it into the net. Yeah, and I thought that was a mistake because, you know, if Medvedev gets there, he has such soft and delicate hands, and he just he just redropped him on the next ball. Yeah, Djokovic like was kind of stranded at the baseline. Yeah. I do. It was a very I, good drop shot, though. Like yeah. I have to say, like the drop shot was very good. That was insane speed by Medvedev to cover that much ground yeah. and get to it and have that kind of feel. But yeah, it's pretty crazy. Wow. But I do. I think that Djokovic now sees Medvedev as a future problem, like in his in this year, because um, he will definitely be a threat now. Uh, come the uh, yeah, North American Summer Hardcourt. Um, Medvedev definitely yeah, I mean, sees his, uh, his biggest opportunity of winning a Grand Slam again in the US Open yeah. this year. I feel like he, he is, has his eyes set there, set there. This is the fifth time he's beaten Djokovic in 14 meetings, right? I mean, there's only a handful of players in tennis history. I think he's the ninth in tennis history to have beaten him at least five plus times. And uh, like the I others think, I, list. Yeah. I think they had to have a seven, seven, five, or six. No, it's nine. It, it's nine, five in favor of Novak, but. Okay. The um yeah, I mean it was five four after the US Open. I know that. And then four in a mm. row for Novak and then so that's nine four and then now this one. But really, I mean, yeah, to beat him five times, uh, all all the times when he's number one, that's a cool stat actually. All the times when Novak is number one, Medvedev has won five of those eight. He's five yeah. and three when Djokovic is number one, and then oh and six when Djokovic is not number one. So I guess I, he has to just yeah. keep hoping that Djokovic stays number one forever. Yeah. And then he can keep getting more wins. Yeah. I think yeah, that but... I saw a stat today, uh, which was saying like, I think Medvedev is only Medvedev, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, and Murray have beaten Djokovic while Djokovic is number one, and Federer, Murray, and Medvedev have beaten him five times, and Nadal has beaten him ten times. Yeah, it's a pretty good company, out. honestly. Big five. <laughs> Yeah, and he's like the only guy to beat him in a 500, a 1,000, a major, and in the year in finals. Yeah. So that's uh, that's pretty big. I mean, yeah. these aren't small tournaments. And he also beat him once on the clay as well in Monte Carlo. So definitely, yeah, this is a this is a difficult matchup. Djokovic always has to be at his very, very, very best. Against most players, he can win with his 80% game, 90% game. Tops. Yeah. Not against Benfidev. Yes, he's in top shape. 
And now that we are, just to conclude this, uh, I think it was the last week or the week before that we were asking ourselves, do we think that Medvedev can become number one again? Did your, change, did your answer change or you're more inclined to change it? No, not not really. Just because, like, I, I mean, Djokovic is still the favorite in, in most places that he goes to. And he's probably still going to be around for the next two or three years. I feel like there's still a slew of young guys. And Medvedev can be a little bit streaky throughout the whole year. He does have some more ups and downs. Um, he, he does. There's two surfaces in the whole year where he's not nearly as comfortable. That's clay and grass. And so I feel like, yeah, I mean, the clay season is a long one. And, uh, you know, even if he just makes quarterfinals, that doesn't really do a whole lot in your, in your ranking when you're that good. So I still feel like like top four, yeah. Top three, yeah. Maybe even number two. But number one, I don't know. I'm just going to say on record, I'll say probably he won't. I mean, he already had it for 16 weeks. That's pretty. That's still more than a lot of other players. Mm-hmm. I would say probably, probably if I were to guess, I'll I'll say he won't get back to number one again. Yeah. Still, and my answer doesn't doesn't really change. Right. Yeah. I'll stick with that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I will. I'll I'll change to I don't know. Like I said, like I was saying, like I don't think he will. But like, uh, that's a cop out. You have to say yes or no. <laughs> oh crap. <laughs> uh, okay. So. To use the tennis podcast uh, hashtag head um, head not heart, I think he doesn't go back to number one again. Um, but yeah. I wish he could like finish number one at least once. It, it was unfortunate because when he got to number one, he didn't feel like the best player in the world. Yeah, you know, the, he essentially he got there like one of the worst worst ways possible, which was like yeah. not by his own doing. Essentially, no, he got there like when he was playing Agapoko and Djokovic had lost to Vesely, and he had made the final, but. You know, obviously there was that question mark of like, what if Djokovic had played the Australian Open? And then like, there was that. And then also like, he just wasn't in good form. But yeah. like the rest of rest of the time that he was number one, he didn't really feel like it. But now if he's playing like this and he gets back to number one, like he's just so much better. I feel like when he is chasing than when he's like, you know, when yeah. he's like the most talked about because he can just kind of like, no one was really expecting this run for him, at least for three yeah. weeks in a row. We thought, okay, maybe he'll win. A t- he could win a title pick up a, because he's still good enough to do that but these sustained weeks he's like now now he's done this in 2019 he did it at the end of 2020 he did it in 2021 was a good season like from start to finish i would say though yeah. if he's if he has another season like that because that's still his peak i would still say like for a sustained stretch and uh, he won over 80 percent of his matches in 2021 yeah i do i, I would say that um that, that's still his best yeah yeah, I would say that like had not the hernia thing happened to him and had him won the Australian Open, I think it would have been a different oh, story. I, I think... mean, had he won the Australian Open, I mean, we were looking at like I was, I was thinking he was going to win at least five majors in his career. Had he won the Australian, and now and then after the, after the season he had last year, I was like, is he ever going to win one? You know, it yeah. just it's just things change so quickly. But yeah, on a hard court, he's doesn't yeah. matter what hard court, he's always going to be a threat. So. Yeah. So if he if he gets back to his all time like hardcore best, like he can like chase a few points here, and I feel like he's still got like, yeah, good game enough to do well at Wimbledon. I think he can still figure out a way to for it to to happen. I it's yeah. hard, but like we'll, we'll see. I mean, uh, definitely but, Wimbledon he has a bigger chance than he does on on the clay yeah. just because of the low bounce, uh, the flat hitting. Yeah. The, he still has the big. And there's also and there's also not a lot of players who are great grass court players anyway. So like if he, he can try to find like to be at least better than the rest so not necessarily great but good enough so I guess please let him play Wimbledon that's the thing 
please let him play Wimbledon so we can yeah. find out. <laughs> yeah, let's hope that Wimbledon opens up this this time around. Yeah, and I'm not going to underestimate him on clay either. He's made Monte Carlo semifinal, Barcelona final, Ron Garros quarterfinal. Like, he can do damage on the clay. It's just... He, has he just to be needs right to get over his head on that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah and also, like, he, he hasn't had a full clay court season since 2019. So, yeah. so yeah. yeah, I think he deserves to have one proper clay season where he plays all the tournaments and then we can evaluate. Yeah. Hey, guys, a little break from my conversation with Vansh. Uh, Owen actually got to send us a little note about what his thoughts are from Medvedev's week in Dubai, um, the matches that he's played against Djokovic, against Choric, what he thinks for from Medvedev, uh, what he expects from him uh, for the rest of the season, how he believes that he's going to play during the clay and uh, grass season to come, and a bit of from the rivalry as well. Um, so yeah, these are a few words from Owen uh, for this podcast. And you better be sure that he will be back recording with us soon. Just you wait a little bit. The time zone's a little bit rough for him now that he's in Australia, but uh, we will still find ways to record. And yeah, Owen is still very much a part of this podcast. So enjoy his insights. Hey everyone, Owen here. So I think the clearest thing about Medvedev's title run is that his A-game is back, right? He didn't drop a set the entire week. He didn't even get pushed past a 6-4 set. And he played... Um, the one seed in Djokovic, the two seed in Rublev, and the eighth seed in Borna Cioric, still a very solid opponent, who he actually won like 21 straight points against at the end of the match. But I think in a way, that same thing kind of shows that this week didn't teach us a whole lot of new things about Medvedev. Like, his A-game is still here, that's true. But I think what really hampered him in 2022 was the lack of a really strong B-game. My main concern about Medvedev is, um, can he beat opponents who are playing really well? And, you know, that semifinal against Djokovic, which was the key match of the tournament, I don't think Djokovic played that well, really. Um, he was outplayed in the first set, down two breaks, got one of them back. And then pretty early in the second set, Djokovic just started teeing off on everything, which you see him do sometimes. Like, and it wasn't a tank, really. Um... But it was clear that Djokovic wasn't willing to hang in the long rallies, so he just blasted forehands, and he had to do that for a while, and ended up missing more than he made. Um, and that's really what Medvedev wants you to do. Like, he wants you to punch yourself out, trying to hit the ball past him, and he's just going to defend really well, as he does. Um, he's going to make fewer errors, and he's going to win every time. Um except against Korda at uh, Australian Open, who had a kind of a similar game plan. Um, but I guess that's sort of why I don't want to read too much into this week, because none of Medvedev's opponents played that well. And on the one hand, if Medvedev plays this well, then for most opponents, it's not going to matter how well they play. Like, you know, we know an informed Djokovic can take him out. Um like, on a hard court. But that's really the only opponent who is, like, better than a peak Medvedev. So it's not like this is a huge problem for him, but I guess I would be cautious when saying, like, oh, Medvedev is back. Because I think one of the things that really distinguished him from other players when he's at his best was sort of his ability um, to, like, play well with his worst shots, I think. Um, something I really remember from um, his best matches... Like, he was actually hitting a lot of good forehands and volleys. Um, if you look at the 2020 World Tour Finals match against team, he was being outplayed, and he had to adjust and ended up coming to net a lot 
And, I mean, we think of his volleys as pretty poor, usually, relative to the rest of the top players, and most of the time they are. But in that final, he volleyed really, really well. And, um, and he ended up winning. And in this tournament, like, no one really forced him to adjust. And so that is still a question for me. Like, what is going to happen to Medvedev when he comes up against a peaking opponent? Who forces him to adjust? The last time it happened was at the Australian Open against Korda, and he lost in straight sets. So I think that question remains. But... I mean, it's a fantastic week for him. Couldn't have gone better. Um, you know, like, I think a win over Djokovic is great, too, because he had lost four straight to Djokovic. Uh, so I think that sort of restores some competitiveness to that rivalry. It wasn't like Djokovic was beating him easily every time, but, um, I mean, Medvedev won four of their first nine matches, which, like, against Djokovic, that's incredible. Beat him three times on hard court. This is his fourth win against Djokovic on a hard court. Um, so I think it's good to just sort of, I guess, prove to himself again that he can beat that guy. Um, because Djokovic was on a hell of a run. He had won 20 straight matches. Um, so yeah, going forward, like, I'm optimistic about Medvedev's year. Um, we know he's not great on clay. He's not great on grass. Um, so I wonder if he can almost use that portion of the year to play, like, pressure-free. Um, and just, like, really go for it. Because it's not like anyone is expecting him to win really a single tournament on clay or grass. So if I were him, I'd use that as an opportunity to really, like, go for his shots, maybe play a little low percentage. And then when the hard courts come around again, he can maybe play a little safer, because that is re- is what he does best. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see how his year turns out. Fantastic week for him. But again, I... I don't think this necessarily means he's fully back. I think the main question for him is still what's going to happen when he comes up against an opponent playing really well and he's forced to step outside of his comfort zone. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. But yeah, shifting over uh, to Acapulco in Mexico. Obviously, uh, we mentioned this earlier, but I don't know Alcaraz. Cameron Nori also pulled out. That was expected. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Sitsipas wasn't there. Sinner wasn't there. And yeah. Rude is, like, you know, coming back still, and he's not in great shape right now. He took a bit of an early loss to Taro Daniel and looked kind of not not so great in his first round either. But I, yeah. I'm not too concerned about him because I think he's he also had a similar slump like this after the U.S. Open, and then he... You know, did well at the ATP Finals, and yeah. maybe just a little concerned that he, that uh, you know, that he didn't look anywhere close to his best. But I also think he's maybe paying the price a little bit for the exhibition tour that he went on with Nadal. 
hmm. uh, at the end of Latin America tour, and then you didn't really have any off season until yeah. like February. So I think if they were to do that again, he probably won't do it. But that was kind of a once in a lifetime thing to do with to do with uh, his idol and also Nadal, who we don't know how much longer he's going to play. So yeah, yeah, that's the point. I think uh, I can't really fault him too much. Mm-hmm. Probably made a lot of money on that tour as well. Um, yeah, <laughs> so can't really complain, right? Yeah, and he got to got to sightsee, got to play like in over 10, 14 days, and probably a good experience. Where yeah. you can tell his friends, like just tennis for the about. fun of it. So never a bad thing. So yeah, but yeah, and and so then all eyes were on Fritz and Runa, and then basically it came down to these semifinals. I mean, oh yeah, also Berrettini injured. That was disappointing. He lost the. He was losing six zero one love. Um, and then he and then he retired, but he obviously these injuries just keep piling up for him. So yeah, what was the injury this time around? Wrist again? I honestly, I'm not even sure. Yeah, like he just, it, I, I, oh yeah, 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 yeah. It was it was his knee. It was his it was uh, his no. calf muscle. It was the calf muscle behind the knee. Yeah, he pointed out on his Instagram yeah. stories. So yeah, that's yeah, why might... they, had a, they had a rain delay, and then the fans booed him as he left. The, the sucks, because, uh, so right, which is not really his fault because I mean he couldn't really play anymore. But yeah, that's unfortunate because with his physique, yeah, you know he is uh, more susceptible, I think, to injuries than yeah. He might end up. He might end up uh, probably skipping um, Indian Wells at this point. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe hopefully, hopefully it was just a minor thing and he can just sort of play through it. But um, the semifinals we got ended up being Tommy Paul against. Taylor Fritz. Fritz, and then Runa versus Diminor. Yeah, and those that Acapulco semifinal Friday was just a total show to watch. Like that was just complete entertainment, theater, uh, guts, determination, but at the same time, just really appalling scheduling again. <laughs> like you're scheduling these matches at eight in the evening, yeah. and then they go three and a half hours, and then you have a long break, and then. By the time Runa and Diminor, and it was brutal conditions, like super humid, like 90% humidity, like 80, 85 degrees. Like both players in the Fritz and Paul match were just totally like collapsing on the court. There was one point where Fritz was like puking in the nearest bin. It was like Sempra style, like 1996 US Open vibes <laughs> with like Fritz just like puking. Like Paul was like cramping and Fritz, actually Morgan Riddle, or Fritz's girlfriend, like put something on her story. Yeah, which basically said, "Oh, actually, I have it right here." She uh, she posted the story, you know, on her Instagram, and she was like, "After he got sick on court last night, we were up till four a.m. with the tournament doctors. He couldn't keep any food down, chills, severe hydration, full body cramping, and almost had to go to the hospital. Ugh. So scary. He is so stubborn to default and pushed himself so hard. And these high humidity tournaments are no joke." It's a really sad way to end the week, but I'm so proud of him for the last few weeks and excited to get to Indian Wells. Obviously, mm. he's the defending champion there, and now he's top five in the world. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good context. I didn't get to watch much of Acapulco uh, this week, um, so I didn't watch this one. I was like, I was surprised that Paul ended up beating beating uh, Fritz. I think Fritz might have been a little bit more fatigued, but yeah, I guess like the it's good context that um, he definitely lost to. Like a like a good a player who knows his game, so like Americans know each other, so they know how to play each other. Um, and I guess like this definitely. Yeah, I mean, and Paul is an like, incredible. Yeah. Paul is an incredible athlete mover, and yeah, any his, kind of a sickness or anything yeah. like that. I mean, definitely like he, as, he's, he's take as, as Fritz himself said, yeah, 
he was up six three five four, Paul. Yeah. And he started for the match and he had match point. And yeah. he got a little nervous, he missed an overhead. Yeah. And then and then he gets broken back. Fritz takes that set in a tie break. And then Fritz goes up three one in the third set. So you're thinking, okay, this is you know, this is gonna be tough, but you know, probably Fritz will end up winning this. Uh he's the favorite to do so at least. And mm-hmm. then and then he just started, you know, the conditions were just so brutal. They got into these physical long rallies, which honestly Paul is very good at making his opponents do because yeah. he's He's one of the quickest guys on tour. He's extremely yeah. crafty. Fritz, Fritz himself said it on the Netflix documentary. Paul is, I think it was on the Netflix documentary that Paul is one of the best movers on tour. <laughs> no, five. I mean his. I mean his speed is like up there with Dimonor, Alcaraz, yeah. like one piece. Like it's it, it, it's that level. He's an yeah. insane athlete. No For joke. Five. I was I was watching like, um, a point on uh, tennis TV Twitter. Um, between Dimonor and uh, Tommy Paul, and I had to check it twice because I thought I was 100 percent sure he was sped up. Just the way that they were moving on court is, is speed, lightning speed. Quick. It's just a joke. And and, and yeah. Fritz uh, and you know and and Paul is obviously extremely good. Like this year, he's made Australian Open semis, and um, so he's he's been on a roll. But he goes on and wins this match in in the tie break, and uh, Fritz is just a complete mess. And he was a total mess too. Like you know, he just barely got over the line. But it was a compelling watch because. At the same time, these two warriors on court were just giving their heart out. But at some point, I was like, "Do we have to draw a line here?" Because, like, you know, it's getting so ridiculous. The conditions are sort of taking over the quality of this match, mm. and like, it's ridiculously late, and we have another match to play after this. And in the past, I probably would have praised them so much for their fighting spirit, and like, you know, probably would have overglorified it. But now, at this, like, after reading Morgan Riddle's post on social media, I'm like thinking, like. Should we be like advocating for this? Like, is this you know, yeah. is this like, or should we just say you know, like, enough is enough? Sometimes, like, you should I mean, yeah. retire at some point if it's that I bad. Feel, I feel like there is a well, yeah. In, in but, terms but it's of, tough because, yeah. like, you know, obviously yeah. all the commentators and everyone, like, that's the first thing is to like praise their guts and determination it, and steel. Yeah, like if you, if you're a commentator and if you're putting this up there, like, I mean, you kind of have a narrative to sell, right? So like, you're still like a, a the advocate for the game. You're, you're there not to tell people like they, you shouldn't be watching this. Like you should be telling like people like, well, this, this, those are gladiators. And to be fair, this is their competitive spirit. Like this tells something about the fact that they want to yeah. win and that they want it so badly. And they will definitely push themselves to the limit, which is definitely great for sports in general. But like I, I do I do I do agree that um there might be something to be done like in terms of like the humanity aspect of it. Like I mean, at the end of the day, those are people. <laughs> so like if if Taylor Fritz ends up in the hospital, he's no different than like uh, you and me, right? So he's he's healthier probably. Like he's is it's definitely like better like um cardio conditions, like physique wise, yes, but like he's still a human being. <laughs> and I feel like if we are advocating for this, I think that um it's i don't think the onus should fall on the player to be like retiring like knowing when to retire from a match even though that is something that they should know for themselves but i think it's obviously like yeah, i mean it's always up to the player to see how much they want to push yeah their limits. yeah but because like he i mean he's a guy who has insane determ- determination and self-belief and he will like push himself over yeah, the edge. Yeah. remember he got wheeled off the court at the french open in 2021 yeah he had a meniscus tear like something that take, normally would take like six seven weeks to come back from yeah. he comes back in three weeks and he's already in the third round of Wimbledon. and obviously in the netflix series you saw how much he, he wanted to play, wanted to play yeah. that that final so yeah. he's definitely one of the guys who 
just never quits yeah. and never gives up. And, and it, it's hard to agree against the decision, right? He won in hindsight. He won Indian Wells. So like, what if he chooses not to play? Like you just oh, he, he would have regretted it for the, the he would have regretted that for the rest of his life. Yeah, like he was, like he was saying. Yeah. So like, yeah, I mean, at yeah. that point, and he definitely like. But the tournament organizers definitely need to take more things into account. I agree. That's the thing. I feel like humidity, like high humidity, and like taking into consideration players, like physiques and like, yeah. uh, you know, I feel like it should definitely like enter in like a scale of like, um, you know, how it has like high heat, like the, the heat uh, rule in Australia. I feel like this could be like something that is implemented like um, tour wise so that like we know like, well, where are the conditions that are actually like, hazardous for players sort of I like mean, in the, the, the roland garros right? match like last year between zverev and nadal that was stupid that was that was that, that reminded me a little bit of this i mean not not in like an injury in, in that sense like what happened in that match but like just like like you know both players were just totally sick like paul couldn't even enjoy the win like it was the biggest win of his yeah. life like essentially to making a final of a 500 i guess after the australian open and like he was just so relieved and just done that it was over it looked like he was just going to collapse and just yeah like, at that point you just kind of go you go back it was to just, the, just relief the more than anything room. else yeah. yeah yeah and then you don't you know you probably have like another four hours of work that you have to do after the match is over yeah and like, who knows like uh, the um fritz almost ended up in the hospital who knows like if paul wasn't close to getting getting into it well, I, I imagine he would have had a really hard time recovering even even though he's like like i said like an insane athlete but even then like then you had dimenor and runa and it was kind of like Three of three of the four semifinalists cramped, and Diminor is just like I, I, I'm good, you know, I'm thriving here, and he just yeah. kind of he just kind of won. I miss it's more than that. I feel like Diminor has elevated his level quite a bit, like actually in the last four months. Yeah, because he's beaten Medvedev now, he's beaten Rafa, and the knock on him always was, oh, he can't beat the top players because he just has, doesn't have enough firepower from the back of the court. But now I feel like he is really getting the most out of his game. Yeah, because now he's beaten Medvedev, Nadal, Rublev. And uh, in, in this tournament, he beats Paul. He beats Runa, and Runa in the third set had a full body cramp. Like I'm telling you, he could not move even a mm. muscle. He was hitting underhand serves every other point, and uh. he was having to just like crush balls on his forehand, like just. And he still somehow won two games. I don't know how he did that. That was insane to even win those two games. And he didn't. He refused to quit and give up. And yeah, at that point, that's when I think. I think. Well, you just can't play. Like, if I'm a coach, I'm like, well, if you get to this situation, there's like literally nothing you can do. Just retire. Like, you're not gonna do it yourself any better if you're like not even close to winning this match. So, and Bruno was so good, like in the first set and a half, and he was just dominating rallies, and he was, you know, he was just the better player, like you would expect, ranking wise yeah. and you know, pedigree wise as well. And then, like, it just Diminor just made it so physical. Like, that's what Diminor yeah. just does so well. He makes. He, he he has this way of just like sucking you in his game and just making you like suffocate because he's just so yeah. quick and he's so relentless and he uh, I feel like he's subtle about the way he goes about it because he actually has some decent variety too. He can come forward, he can serve in volley and he has to sort of make up for his lack of baseline firepower. So he has yeah. to like take all super early on the rise, like on the half bounce. He has to like yeah. you know come in on like play aggressive on certain occasions but it's I mean, obviously, there's a ceiling, but it's like, it's great to see him like sort of maximize it. He has seven titles now, and this is his biggest one. Yeah, it's quite a lot of titles. He, he does definitely. I mean, uh, the fact that he's a... 18, 18 is his career high ranking, and now he's back to that. Yeah. I so think that... he's kind of been the same player for the yeah. last four or five years, but now he's really starting to get yeah. the most. I think that one thing about Demonor is that, like, as you said, like he's not going to. There's a, there's a ceiling to his game. 
So in a sense, this is he's like an equivalent of like Rublev in the sense that like Rublev is like is a power player. He attacks like a lot, and he wins essentially everywhere where he's supposed to. And I guess Deminor in the sense this is like the lower ver- lower ranked version of Rublev in the yeah, sense, he's like except the, like he's, he's not attacking. Round, yeah, he's round a defensive round player. Four version. He's like a litmus test of like can you be a consistent top twenty player? Yeah. And he's like, he's. And the reason for that is that like Deminor is a is a match player. He's a is I guess you could say he's like a big match player, but like because he's won like a lot of those finals, he's won that many titles. He doesn't know how to quit, and he's always believing that he can he can do damage, he can win matches, um, even with like his obvious his obvious ceiling and whatnot. But like I think that's something that we most like we see from the outside. We think it's obvious, but like when you're on the ground, maybe um, he thinks that or he strategizes in a way that he can uh, compensate for those things. The one thing that I probably would um, suggest to him, and I think it's probably one of the things that is most fixable because you have most control out of it is I think he can spot serve a lot better than he does. So um, he tries to do a decent job of it and then come forward and he hits the wide one on the deuce pretty good. And sometimes he'll throw in it on the, on the ad side too. The issue is he's not super tall. I think he's six feet, but that's a little generous. If you like, I looked it up on the website. It yeah, says he's, he's 183. Uh, so yeah, he, he's actually listed as he's not a super bulky guy. Yeah. Either, because so when when you yeah, it's because when you think inches, there's a little bit more to it. So like, yeah. uh, Tommy Paul and Deminor are both six foot tall, but Deminor is actually shorter. He's like two full centimeters shorter. Um, so yeah, and I guess if you're looking for a tennis player, like a good height would be like six between six four and six six. I think it's a the idea yeah, I and mean, that's certainly where the game is headed now but like you know going back to him like I, I feel like he also does well in this sort of latin american spanish or hispanic atmosphere because like his best result before in the 500 was also barcelona and he really pushed alcaraz in that match alcaraz had this insane shot on match point down last year in barcelona and i think his his dad or his mom is uruguayan his and then his other parent is Spanish and he definitely trained in Spain for a long time and he's really fluent in Spanish and I think he got a lot of crowd support as well in Acapulco mm. so that definitely helped him like in terms of good vibes good atmosphere and he was able to translate that into his tennis and he's just the last man standing literally because in, even in the final it was very similar to the Runa match Paul was a better player for the first set and a half and then you know and but Divinor just refused to give up and refused to go away and he mm-hmm. played such a good third set I mean he was he was not missing and when he's in that kind of mode and he you're trying to go through him from the baseline and you can't finish the yeah. rally in under nine shots you're kind of toast because he'll last longer than you he'll run faster than you yeah he'll hit with more depth than you if you leave anything short he's gonna pounce on it yeah and he was really and good he at, is, he's really good at counter punching so like he, he yeah was very good like really punchers. good backhands especially He's up there with the Andy Murray and Timmy Norris and just pure counterpunching. I yeah. mean, obviously they have more weaponry to their games, but it's yeah. So he he maximized. He took advantage of a good opportunity, and now he has a five hundred. So yeah. So yeah, I mean, and then you also had the event in Santiago, where Nicholas Jarry story for Nicholas Jarry. Yeah, I mean Jarry has played very well in this uh, Golden Swing because last week he also pushed Alcaraz in Rio. In the semis, yeah. yeah, and he had he was winning very decisively up until that point, and this week he was, I mean, he was almost two yeah. points away from losing uh, in this final. 
because he lost mm. the first set in the tiebreak, and then his and his final opponent Thomas Echeverri. It's this Argentinian enclave who's been doing really well in challengers and two fifties, and yeah, he, yeah. he did pretty well the in in the Golden Swing this year. So he was coming yeah. up like every every other tournament, like he was pushing everyone when, like yeah. really far. And, and I think, I think, I think he Gary, almost uh, beat. Didn't he almost beat Cam Nori? I think. It's very really, no. He took the first set. Yeah, and then uh, and then didn't come through, but it was a good fight. And he, yeah, yeah. Here, his game reminds me a little bit of Leonardo Meyer, who's a fellow, fellow Argentine. Yeah, with a two-handed backhand. <laughs> yeah, basically, because he has a big serve, and then his point construction is pretty similar. It's mostly based on his forehand and his footwork, and he likes to. I think maybe Meyer was a little more comfortable moving forward. He could use the slice. He had a one-hander, so he was good on the backhand volley too. But Echeverria is just—he's very potent from the baseline. There were some. Uh, our good friend Jethro at one point was comparing him to Del Potro with just how big his mm. forehand is yeah. and looks and feels on the court. It's super imposing and he seems to be uh, improving a lot. And he's, I think, in the top 70 now in the rankings. And Yari is uh, a good comeback story because, as we know, he was banned for a while for a substance, which, by the way, he didn't actually abuse. Like, it was a mistake. And he got his ban cut short. Um, so... It's good to see him have like some more success because he was definitely a factor in 2019 and 2020. I remember he beat Zverev and he he and Zverev had another really close final in Geneva, which he almost won. And then he was pushing some top players and he got as high as like 37 in the world. But now he's doing really well. Yeah. And Recording. actually Schwartzman, and... who was on a bit of, bit of a slump, really pushed him in this. Yeah. Uh, so... Yeah, that like was... I think, um, or you, at this point, you're now talking about Jari, right? Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, Jari. Because yeah. he, once he survived that Schwartzman scare. Yeah, there was, a, really kind of there was an interesting match, too, because, like, the, the thing about Jari in this, in this entire tournament is that he was, he really wanted to win because he's from Chile, he's from Santiago. And yeah, he's the, the, the vibes, the vibes are great. The, the atmosphere is in, insane. Sometimes there were like some like maybe disrespectful times where um, they were like chanting between first and second serve, like you know crowd annoyances that sometimes happen when there's like a hometown um, player in it. Uh, and but the Schwartzman match was, I think, was a really good one for Schwartzman. I think he should be proud of the way he fought. Um, it kind of was unfortunate that he played against um, like a Chilean in the in front of their home crowd. But yeah, I, I like the way that Schwartzman played um, a few points. They didn't always play great. Uh, sometimes he was just like just lacking confidence, which is obvious. But for the shots are still pretty much there. I find like he still got like some good backhands, uh, ran a lot, like hit good 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 forehands as well. Um, the serve there is not much you can do about it, but like he was defending well. So yeah. Um, that was that was great, but but Jari, yeah, I think that some of that yeah, ground stroke potency yeah. looked to be a bit sharper from the weeks before, and he seemed to, you know, really get in and play physical long rallies, and that's what Schwartzman is so good at. And for Jari to withstand that test, and yeah. then came back from a set down against Yannick Hoffman, was down six one two one against and a break against Yaume Munar, who's a pretty good clay court player himself, mm. and then and then against Echeverri, he was two points from defeat. So Nicholas Yari really had to earn all of these wins and come back from a set down like basically four matches in a row so that's that's yeah. a pretty good 
good story, and I think he's going to be be the factor for be a big factor for the European clay courts as well. I wouldn't be surprised if he got himself seated it. Yeah, potentially by the French yeah. Open. And to be fair, and honestly, he's got a pretty good translatable game. Like he's got a really big serve. He's got a good forehand. He moves well. Uh, like in the going he moves to the pretty, pretty well for his height, yeah. like very well actually. And he's also really good at the net. So like he can yeah. threw in like a couple of serving volleys here and there. Um, he's not necessarily like the biggest uh, the biggest mover. Obviously, he doesn't have like yeah. a super high uh, rally tolerance. He, he goes like too long. Like he kind of don't like this run chances way too much. But he has he has a really good game. Like he's very complete. Like for yeah, yeah. So and the serve does a lot of damage, well. and that definitely will translate on other surfaces. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think we can. We might be able to see more of him like this year. Like I think he, if he keeps going, like the momentum, I think is is definitely uh Yeah, he's that same generation's like Kyrgios and Nori, like ninety five. So yeah, yeah. Definitely yeah. still has a lot more to get out of his career. Yeah, so uh, we just hope for. For more of them, then, because uh, always good to have competitive tennis, especially in the early rounds. Sometimes I think it's uh, good to have like a good test, especially for the top players. So we'll see. Um, and on the women's side, we had, I think it was two tournaments, right? This week we had uh, Austin and Monterey. Yep, and uh, in in Austin we had a first time champion, and well, actually both the players in the final that was their first WTA final. Varvara Gracheva of Russia and Marta Kostyuk, who we've we've actually talked about for a while. I remember on this podcast, I predicted her to have a breakthrough year in 2021. Mm. It didn't really work out that well for me. She got to the fourth round of the French and mm. had some few good results here and there. And last year was an insanely tough year, obviously, with everything going on in Ukraine. She's been so vocal about it on social media and, you know, can't really blame her because her country is going through a lot. But yeah. uh, she had to go through and win the title to this week she's now up to 40 in the world and it seems like uh she's here to stay for several more years she's only 20 which is really surprising because she's been around for so long but she was 15 when she made the third round of the australian open in 2018 so that's that's when i first watched her play and then i sort of seen her develop and she has a, a great backhand she can serve decently well she hits her spots nicely she can take balls early she can sometimes redirect it similarly to Bencic, which is obviously a, a great tool to have. Uh, and she can, she's not really scared of any opponent and it shows on the court when she's up against the top players. She usually always pushes them. I remember she pushed uh, some players pretty hard in the Middle East mm-hmm. and didn't really come out with a win. Who was it that she played in the Middle East and it was like three hours and 30 minutes, something crazy? I'd have to check. It's like, I'm not sure if I... Yeah, she played. Uh, who was it? I'm trying to remember now. I think it might have been. It's. I think it was Benchich. Yeah, it was Benchich. Yeah, Benchich was coming off of that run. It was. She she lost that match. Six seven seven six six four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember waking up to that and being like, "Wow, that was uh, that was quite a tussle, three and a half hours." That was in Dubai. Yeah. Oh, actually, that's interesting because she played Benchich two like two weeks in a row. Yeah, uh-huh. I remember. The, I remember the Abu Dhabi one. She lost in two tight sets, and then that was it. They always have some close matches. Her and Benjic. Yeah. yeah. Um. But. But yeah, going back to Kostyuk, like. This was a uh, this is this could set her up really well for the whole year, I think, because she also beat Danielle Collins. That was the big win in the semis, mm-hmm. in straight sets. Collins is still kind of searching for her form after last year, and 
she hasn't been playing so well, but she beat her in straights. And I think that was the biggest takeaway because I kind of, I go through this draw her first three rounds and I'm like, I kind of expect you to beat these players. And they're, she did like pretty comfortably. Madison Pringle was a bit of a challenge. She dropped one set. Yeah. But I think when she was playing Collins, I was like, okay, this this is a good opportunity for any of these four players left. Mm-hmm. But main, mainly Collins. Um, well, Collins would probably be a little bit disappointed she didn't play that well in this match. Like just made a lot of unforced errors and didn't really rise to the occasion. But you know, let Costa get away with seven double faults. It just wasn't great from Danielle. But nonetheless, Costa won and got to the final. And then obviously the big story afterwards was uh, her not shaking hands with Russian. Yeah, Nepal. I mean, that was kind of expected because she didn't really mm-hmm. do that with Azarenko when they played at the US Open. And it was more just a racket tap. Um, but I think yeah. it's understandable with everything happening in Ukraine. It was, a, you know, agreed on before the match even started. So... Yeah, I guess yeah. look out for her. She's gonna have a some big moments this year, maybe. She's yeah, I was on, I was wondering what <laughs> I was wondering what was gonna happen for the the handshake on this one. Like when I saw, it's kind yeah. of like nothing really happened. I think that's I, I kind think of the camera didn't even like cut to it. Like I watched the match point and they didn't really like show it. It was just like on the side. Then the commentator was like, "And as we expected, no handshake." You know? <laughs> yeah. Gracheva just walked straight to his to to her bench. Yeah. And it was kind of like a nod. Like she just nodded and it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but that's it's kinda of good that it's nothing really too yeah. not not much happened on this one. Just kind of went by and that was it. That's okay. <laughs> that's uh so I think it's better. Like honestly, like even if they didn't agree to anything, something was going to happen given how Mart how Kostiuk has been uh, talking about the whole thing this entire time. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think the more loaded event, uh, especially on the WTA, was the one in Monterey, which always has pretty decent fields for a mm-hmm. WTA 250. And this time you had, it was headlined by mainly Carla and Garcia. She was the number one seed. And second seed uh, was Siniakova, but she lost pretty early. And in this one, Garcia was kind of playing, bringing her aggressive tennis, like we know, you know, for a strike. A lot of power, big serving, and then returning, you know, near the service line. Like she likes to do and take balls early and charge forward. Well, that good success that we saw from her last year, the WTA finals, Cincinnati, etc. Well, that kind of translated over, and then she got to the final rather easily. Vekic, on the other hand, the number three seed, who the reason I bring up Vekic, she's coached by Pam Shriver, first of all. Mm. So Pam Shriver is a friend of the spot, by the way. So shout out <laughs> to her and congratulations to her and Vekic, you're doing phenomenal work. Uh, keep it up, you know. This is she's Vekic has been on an absolute run since San Diego. She got to the finals of the San Diego Open last year, which was a loaded 500. She beat so many top players in that in that tournament, and then pushed Fiontek, took a set off of her in the final. Ultimately, ended up losing that match, but that set her up really nicely. She made an Australian Open quarterfinal. Her yeah. losses this year: Sakari playing super well, and Linz and Sabalenka at the Australian Open. Besides that, she's beaten everyone else that she's played. And so for Vekic to win this final against Garcia, 6-4, 3-6, 7-5 was pretty impressive because, um, you know, I, I was only able to catch the, the last bit of this set because I was out for a bit. Mm. But uh, from what I watched, I mean, Vekic just held her composure really nicely. She was hitting her forehand on the run beautifully. She has a really nice backhand drop shot that can do some damage because she hits really hard from the baseline, has a good amount of power. But uh, and she, but when she's controlling it and she has a good finesse as well, that makes her a nightmare to play. Yeah. 
But yeah, and I, you can clearly uh, tell that she's definitely re- revamped her game and she she's ha- having a resurgence because in 2019 she got to the U.S. Open quarterfinal and she was top 20 in the world and now she's heading back there. She's going to be 23 in the world after this and yeah, I think and I have to say the Pam Shriver thing really seems to work. Like they really seem to connect very well on a personal level, on a tennis level, on a you know just a tactic level and yeah, seems like she's just committed. Yeah, I saw, I saw Vekic playing against Sakari, uh, I think in Linz uh, a couple yes. of weeks back, and I'm not quite, I'm not entirely sure. I think it went ended in two sets, but it could yeah, have been, it could it have was, been it a was third six, set. Three, yeah. It was six three seven six, but that tiebreak yeah. was insane. It might have been like yeah. ten eight or eleven. And nine to be fair, uh, for a lot of for a lot of the second set, like Vekic was looking like the better player. Like, and yeah. she just hit the the forehand a lot better. Like she was being just as being very dominant, like on from the back of the court. I mean, court. I mean, so, in San Diego, she has. If you look at some of her head to heads, she has a good yeah. record against some of these current proper players. That's why yeah. it makes sense for me that she's in this picture because she's in that same age group as like your Pagula, Mukoba, Collins, you know, yeah. Brady. Like, she's just as good as those those people are because in San Diego, she beat Sakari, she beat Puskova, she beat Sabalenka, she beat Collins, yeah. and then she lost in three sets too. Shiante. Like she can beat most of these players. She beat Samsonova in the second round of the Australian Open this year, six three six zero. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's like uh, when when the game is good, like it's yeah. only it's only a matter of the head being in place, and obviously her ranking is going to rise. And there is absolutely no um, no surprises there. Like the way that she's playing, the way she can play, uh, it's it's definitely something that I looked at it at this result, and obviously like I was backing Garcia to win this match, but like. Seeing that Vekic did it, uh, I'm not surprised. I think it's definitely yeah. like something that, um, and it was a tough battle. Uh, so uh, it only speaks to the fact that like those two players are playing really good tennis, and um, Vekic being a lot more consistent now as well. So yeah, she's put it together now since San Diego. 19 over the last 23 matches, she's won. Yeah. So that's a sustained, consistent stretch. So I think she's gonna have, uh, she's gonna do. She should be a factor, honestly, everywhere because. Mm-hmm. When you're confident and you're on a run like this, uh, she can definitely carry this over to Indian Wells in Miami. We'll see. So, yeah, I think that covers all the pretty much WTA and yeah. ATP events. Just yeah, a, so little, a, lot of, yeah. a lot of other challenger results happening. Kovacevic, he's got a wild card into the Indian Wells and he just won another title. He's a good player to watch. Nice one-handed backhand. Yeah. And, and, and appara- apparently um, the longest... I ever challenger final challenger final has yes. been played between Hugo Humbert and uh Luca Vanash. Yeah. Two Frenchmen, three hours and fifty six minutes, minutes. Something like that. Yeah. This is all courtesy of Damien Cust on Twitter. If you by the way, if yeah. you ever want to follow challengers or do any like keep up with that news, just follow Damien Cust. He is so good about like yeah. updating and just like his knowledge of all these players coming up all the way from the juniors, he's like the best. So yeah. Follow him. <laughs> yeah. Also, the challenger TV is free, so there's no yeah. excuse not to be watching this when there's and, like and catch good content. highlights because on YouTube, unlike the other matches, they actually put up really decent, high quality, 10 15 minute highlights that don't go and they stay there for days. So check those out because some of this tennis is good. Like this Luca Vanash Bear match, it was pretty high quality and mm. two match points were saved and you know it just looks like uh, it was some good stuff. It was played indoors, so. Yeah, but I, I got to go and play tennis actually, so I'm pretty excited right, about that. Cool. But uh, uh, I hope this, I hope uh, this conversation pumped you up to tennis. So like, I hope you go and rip some forehands. Uh, yeah. 
I'm sure I'm not going to be in Daniel Medvedev mode. I'll be missing mm-hmm. a ton, but all right. Uh, <laughs> anyway, well, like, well, thanks for for the time. Uh, thanks for talking to Ennis as always. Uh, was, this was great, and I'll see you all next time. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 